You are listening to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. In 2018, Maya Forstadter was subject to an internal investigation at her place of employment, the Center for Global Development, after complaints about her tweets. Notably, a tweet questioning a man named Pip Bunce, who was listed as one of the Financial Times top 100 female champions of women in business. Essentially, she was trying to push a conversation about his identity and the celebration of Pip Bunce as a woman. She lost her job as a result, accused of transphobia. Maya took the case to the Employment Tribunal, which resulted first in a judgment saying her belief that sex is real was not worthy of respect in a democratic society. Maya recently co-founded Sex Matters, a UK-based not-for-profit that works to promote clarity about sex in public policy, law, and culture, as well as the Respect My Sex If You Want My Ex campaign. I spoke with her recently about the tribunal, the campaigns she's working on in the UK, and her lunch with J.K. Rowling. Hello, Maya. Thank you so much for talking with me today. I'm so um, impressed and inspired by all the work you're doing over in the UK, so I'm I'm really excited to talk to you. Hi, Megan. <laughs> um, I'm curious to know, was there was there something in particular that first got you talking about the issue of, of sex and gender identity? Um there were a couple of things that made me notice um, I think, you know, my story is quite similar to lots of people who, you know, hadn't thought about the issue very much, thought thought about being inclusive, um, you know, thought about sort of being on the right side of history or whatever, and hadn't really thought about it. And a couple of things that sort of really sparked my interest in 2018 um, one was when um, Jenny Murray, who's a radio presenter on uh, BBC Radio 4 Women's Hour, so it's like a kind of national treasure, um, you know, like J.K. Rowling, but uh, on, a, on a smaller scale. And uh, she had written this article in a newspaper saying, trans women are trans women and they should be celebrated for that and accepted but they're different from women and that seemed like a perfectly um sensible thing to have said and then obviously you know she was cancelled um from speaking at universities and you know they said she was a terrible person and that that was kind of the first thing for me that made me look at it and go well what why are they saying this perfectly sensible woman is a terrible person so there was that and then there was also um this was around the time when um the uk government was consulting on whether to bring in gender self-id in law and so women were starting to meet um to talk about this and women's place uk were organizing early meetings and one of them um was going to be at Millwall Football Ground and which is a their 
their slogan is no one likes us we don't care you know they're used to rough crowds and um when women's place uk went to have their meeting there it was cancelled because the trans rights activists rang up and and said you know these these middle-aged socialist women are, are terrible people and so they organized to have a meeting somewhere else but they met at speaker's corner at hyde park so that so to not say where the meeting would be and, and there were protesters there there was a fight um there were you know people were pushed um and there were videos on youtube and people were saying the trans rights activists were saying these women were the antagonists and you could see there was a 60 year old woman being pushed over by what looks clearly like a six foot tall young man um, who later said that they were a woman and that they were attacked by this 60 year old 60 year old woman and so seeing those pictures of what clearly looks like male violence and is male violence being repackaged as being um, a vulnerable minority that you know that was one of the first things that sort of made my brain go something's not right with this picture and start to pay more attention to it mm -hmm. and you you said something that caused you to lose your job in relation to this subject um can you tell me what happened there yeah so from that point of starting to pay attention to this i i'm a researcher so um i'm quite careful and i read about the subject it took me about a year of you know listening to you reading stuff um you know watching things on youtube to figure out what i thought and then i decided to start tweeting about it i was working as a researcher at a think tank um and the government was doing this consultation so i tweeted um there is this consultation about self-ID, I share the concerns of Fair Play for Women, which is one of the um, grassroots groups that was organising at the time. Here's their, um, they'd done a little um, brochure, leaflet about the, the consultation, read it. There are other views, you know, it's a democratic process. Um, uh, sort of get involved. And um, I didn't get much feed, like no likes, no retweets nobody telling me I was a bigot just nothing just tumbleweed um and I tweeted a few different things things that were going on in the news at the time um like the male prisoner who was put into a female prison and and assaulted um women prisoners and again nothing and then I asked a question of my followers which was um there was a story in the paper about this man, Pips Bunce, Philip Bunce, who works for a big international bank in London and who comes to work part time wearing a dress, heels, wig, makeup and calling himself Pippa on those days. And Pippa had been given an award by the Financial Times for being a leading woman in business. And obviously this kicked off um, a storm on Twitter. And so I tweeted a question to my followers say, saying, if you 
have taken a pledge not to be on a manal, so not to speak at conference on a male-only panel as a man, and you were invited to be on a panel with two guys and Pips Bunce, would you still say that's a manal? You need to, could you find a woman who knows stuff about the topic or or not? And I asked it partly because I was angry about Pips Bunce and partly to see if people would engage with the question if it wasn't asked about prisons or sport or something where they could just say, well, that's not, you know, that's not my um, business. It's complex. I don't need to go there. So I was trying to ask about something in their personal life. And it kicked off this quite a um, nuanced, in-depth discussion over about a week on Twitter with my followers who were international development policy wonks. Um, and that's what kicked off uh, sort of alarm bells started ringing in Washington DC which was the headquarters of the organization I worked for um, and it sort of went downhill from there but that was it was asking that question about a cross-dresser being given an award for women was was what really kicked it off. And and then how did it come about that you lost your job as a result? You know, what was said to you? Were there any conversations <laughs> um, there? What happened? So after, straight after that, I got an email from, from HR in Washington saying, can you put disclaimer on your tweets? You know, say all views my own. And um, saying we don't vet the views of our associates, but we ask you not to use um, exclusionary language. And so I wrote back and said, I'm happy to put a, I have put a disclaimer on my tweets. I will continue to say that women are adult human females. Men cannot be women. Trans women are not women because I think these things are true. I think the category women excludes men. So you can be polite, but you have to be able to exclude um people from categories that they don't fit into in order to talk about different categories. And um, I thought, and I, you know, this was a think tank that allowed people to take different positions that was happy for people to disagree and disagree in public about stuff as long as they used evidence and, and were, you know, personally polite about it, which I was. Um, and so I kind of thought that was, that was it. Um, and what I didn't realize until much later, it took about six months for me to lose my job. Um, and then I brought the claim and it's taken three years for it to get to court. And in that process, you get the disclosure of all the emails you didn't see at the time. So over the past year, I've they've sent me all these emails. So now I can see what happened after that, which was uh, there were whole rounds of discussion about the problem of Maya because I was talking about this. But at the time, I didn't see any of that. I, I was kind of blissfully unaware. And when you did lose your job, like, what was it that you were told? Like, what was the reason for that? Was there, did it seem like there was anything justifiable in there? So, so towards the, end what my my employment situation was 
not straightforward. I wasn't a full time employee with a um, standard contract. I was a visiting fellow and I also had consultancy contracts. So I had this slightly messy, um, you know, kind of gig economy thing going on. And um, my visiting fellowship was due to be renewed. And I'd also been working with the organisation to raise funding for a new big project with the idea being if we were successful in raising the funding, I would be hired to do the work. And so when that funding came in, that was when they told me, oh, we're not going to give you a job to do the work, but we'd like you to stay on as a visiting fellow and continue as a consultant, but we're not going to hire you as staff. And then they said, oh, we're not sure we want you to continue as a visiting fellow. Some people have raised concerns about your tweets and then finally um, they uh, took away the offer of remaining as a consultant so they sort of took away the job piece by piece over the period of six months and at the same time they had commissioned um, an investigation of me by a consultancy um, which at the time I, I had understood it was this was a diversity inclusion consultants that were doing training for the organization and i had understood it that they were trying to work out um a policy on academic freedom you know how do you accommodate people with different views in an organization sort of using me as a case study but not um not investigating me but when i saw the report which I didn't see at the time I didn't see until much later on in the court case um, these people had uh, you know they just looked at my views and said they're bigoted and wrong um, and all the time that this was going on I was kind of emailing my employer and sending them things like isn't this interesting or read this by Kathleen Stark read this by Rosa Friedman, you know, by academics who were writing serious stuff about this. And these diversity inclusion consultants were looking at things written by Kathleen Stock and saying, she's a bigot. Um, you know, even retweeting things by Kathleen Stock is enough to make you a witch. Um, and But at the time, I didn't see any of that. I wasn't able to comment on it. Um, I wasn't able to defend myself and it was only much later when I brought the case that all of that all of that uh, stuff was brought into the public domain. So you took your employer into a tribunal for discrimination in response to all this in 2019 I believe. What was the ruling at that time? Um, so the tribunal is the first level of court it for an employment case and my case was broken up into three questions one question was is my belief the belief that sex is real and immutable and important a protected belief under the equality act so in the same way that you shouldn't be discriminated against for being a christian or being a muslim or being a stoic or being a ethical vegan there are all kinds of philosophical beliefs that are protected or being an atheist, you shouldn't, that this belief is serious and coherent 
and important enough to be considered a philosophical belief? That that was the first question. Then the second question is about my employment status. And the third question is about, was I discriminated against? And in 2019, I lost on the first question. So the first judge said, your belief fails the test of being a philosophical belief that should be protected. And the reason why he said it failed was because it destroys other people's human rights and is not worthy of respect in a democratic society. And so that meant he was putting that belief, that, you know, really ordinary belief about sex on par with something like being a Nazi or a fascist, because those are the kinds of beliefs that are not protected. And this judge put my belief on that level and said, therefore, the belief is not protected, which means it should be open season to discriminate and harass people with our belief. And at that point, you appealed. Is that is that right? Tell me what that's, happened. After that's that. right. So yeah. well, so what happened the day after? So this was December 2019. And the day after that, JK Rowling tweeted. So um, and then all hell broke loose in my world <laughs> because the tribunal case was quite small. It had been crowdfunded. It had attention from feminists in, in the UK who'd, who'd put money up for it, um, but it hadn't really got massive attention. And then the day that JK Rowling tweeted about it, it got um, international press attention and, and I've been sort of harassed about it ever since. Um, so that was what happened straight after. And then I appealed, put in the the appeal. Um, and then uh, COVID happened. So then the courts got very slow for a while. Uh, and the appeal wasn't heard until 2021 in um, the spring. So, And so what's happened to JK Rowling ever since is all your fault. Yeah, <laughs> basically. <laughs> Did she get in touch with you at all before or after that? Um, afterwards she did, but not before. So when it happened, I mean, you know, obviously I was gutted when I lost. And um, I remember, you know, I was sitting there. I had some other work on. I was trying to concentrate on kind of getting on with my life. And someone WhatsApped me this screenshot of jk rowling's tweet and i thought they'd made it up i thought they'd like photoshopped it to cheer me up um and then you know i looked on twitter and there it was gathering thousands and thousands of likes um and it but it just completely dropped with no warning and no idea that she was going to do that and when you appealed what was the result? I won. Yeah. So that was in <laughs> basically. So I won that bit. And but that what in... like yeah, and then but I think sorry, finish your sentence. I'm sorry. No, it's just because so that was in June twenty twenty one and that was so I won that the belief is worthy of respect in a democratic society and that because it's an appeal, it sets a precedent. So it then means that other people with who share the belief are also protected against discrimination and harassment. So that was really important. Mm -hmm. um, and in the appeal, 
you don't get to in the first tribunal and in the most recent tribunal I was a witness they asked me questions I say what happened but in the appeal the claimant me you don't get to say anything you just sit there and watch it and people talk about you and so the um, lawyers for the other side said I was a terrible person and my views were on par with Nazism and um, my lawyer said that they weren't and they were protected by freedom of belief and freedom of speech um, but it's a very odd thing because you just sit there watching people talk about you and you can't say anything yeah that sounds really really frustrating um <laughs> what was what was the um, the impact on your life when all this was going on how did this all feel to you um i've been kind of living with it for for three years now it's been it's been a roller coaster from um I mean, the first part, losing my job took six months and I was isolated. That was nobody else. Nobody knew about it. I was kind of trying to negotiate to keep my job. Um, I didn't really believe that it was happening, that this think tank would fire me for um, saying a very ordinary thing. And so that was kind of the worst bit. And then when I lost my job, I tweeted about it and I didn't know this, but there were feminist lawyers who were looking for a case like who, who sort of thought that there would be a case like mine. They'd already thought about belief discrimination and they were sort of waiting to see if there was a good case. And mine was a good case. And it was eight days from when I tweeted that I lost my job to when I put the claim in. And, um, you know, in those eight days, I made the biggest decision of my life. And I can't remember making that decision, but it happened. <laughs> um, and then, you know, since then, it's been kind of a roller coaster of lots of waiting, lots of stress, a few moments of high drama um, and sort of gradual. Um, uh optimism i mean i'm feeling much happier about i'm i'm feeling very happy that i spoke up and that i was able to take this case and that the state of the debate at least in the uk has shifted massively in the last 3 years in terms of us being able to talk about this and politicians talking about it and the media talking about it um and I'm quite proud of the role that my case has played in that. I mean, a lot of people will say that, for example, using correct pronouns, you know, referring to a man as she, if he wants to be referred to as she, um, is not really a big deal. Like, it's just a matter of politeness. It's sort of a harmless, nice thing to do. That's not the crux of the issue. Do you disagree with that? I do and my kind of thinking about pronouns has shifted my thinking about the whole thing has shifted from when I first started talking about this so um you know when they when they emailed me about this I said one of the first things I said was I would of course 
use somebody's preferred pronouns in the workplace. And I think I probably would. I think I probably still would because, you know, I'm not a, um, I don't go looking for conflict, but I can see why that's um, not a straightforward thing. It, you know, it that is giving away our language and our ability to speak the truth. And there are particular situations where that's more important than others. Um, you know, for example, in court where you're being told to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And if a woman has been attacked by a man and the man says, call me she, she's not able to tell the truth. Or if a woman has, I mean, if a woman is getting divorced from a man who now thinks he's a man, how can she be forced to say, I was married to a woman and the father of my children is a woman? Um, you know, so that I think there are situations where truth matters more than politeness. And whenever we're talking about the conflict of rights between women and men, women and, you know, men who want to be perceived as women, we have to be able to talk about the truth clearly. How did we get to this point? I mean, to me, like, it just seems like crazy town. Like, it's been <laughs> normalized for so many people. And it's even been normalized for those of us who are pushing back. Like we're now we're used to having to argue about sex. We're used to the idea that, you know, we, we talk about a man as he, as being treated as controversial, you know, mm. a challenging gender neutral, you know, pronouns and gender neutral terms when it comes to things like, reproduction and menstruation and pregnancy and all those things but it's it's not normal and when I think about it I'm like this is is it like is a trick being played on us you know like is this all a big joke because we do have to take it serious because it is serious because the impacts are really serious but at the same time it's completely ridiculous and crazy yeah I I you know it's a it's a massive um, joke on one hand, but on the other hand, it's really serious. And it's, you know, and it's, it's serious because it's, you know, I think there's so much focus on what is a woman, but actually what this thing is doing is not allowing you to talk about male violence. What is a man? You know, if a man says he's non-binary, then you're supposed to think he's not a man. But of course he's a man. And we have to be able to do pattern recognition. We have to be able to do risk assessment. We have to be able to collect data. You know, we have to be able to talk about reality. So, you know, there's that. And then there's that children are being um, sterilized and told lies and um, put on a path that is not doing them any good. Um, so, you know, there's that kind of really serious side of it. And then there's just all of the crazy that has been whipped up around that 
to stop people even talking about what those harms are. I mean, how do you think we got to the point where we believed or we were told that sex didn't matter? It seems like, I mean, of course, sex does matter, but for a long time it was accepted and taken for granted that sex did matter. And now suddenly, within a matter of only a few years, really, we're supposed to pretend that there's no difference between male and female bodies and and yeah that those those differences don't matter at all in any context yeah i mean i think you know on one side there's the sort of academic arguments about this the queer theory the sex is a spectrum and and all of that stuff which should never have escaped from a small university department into the real world and then there's people in the real world in practical jobs you know doctors and nurses and teachers and retail and you know everyone who's dealing with other people um who i think thought this is about being kind you know this is about a very small minority this is about um you know, people with a condition that we don't really understand. Um, and the thing to do is to be kind and to go along with um, what they want. But I don't think those people ever really thought sex doesn't matter because, you know, when it comes down to it, everyone knows how babies are made and who their mother is and who their father is and who they fancy um, and all of that. And, I, you know, I don't think most people have really imbibed the the queer theory academic stuff apart from a small and influential group that um predominate in you know sort of elite institutions of the western world but most people are going along with it on in terms of in terms of being kind and so I hope, I think that, I mean, I've, you know, I've started an organization called Sex Matters because I think this is a obvious truth that has to be made speakable again. And it's not, um, I mean, it's stupid. It's a, it's a stupid thing to have to argue for because everyone knows that it's true, but somehow it's become, it's become unspeakable. But it's not that people really think that sex doesn't matter. Right. I mean, that's sort of a question that I've asked <clears throat> many times over the years. Like, do people really believe this? Because I don't, I don't yeah. think most people really, truly believe that sex doesn't matter. But a lot of people say that it does, right? A lot of people act yeah. like it does, right? Or that it doesn't, I suppose. I don't know if they act like it does. I mean, they'll say it. People will say the words. People will say all kinds of things if it's financially and socially advantageous for them to say it but I think people where the way people act is something different I mean we're you know people say the craziest things you know this you can't tell what sex someone is unless you've examined their genitals or done a chromosome test which is crazy. We're, you know, we are evolved mammals. We're really, really good at spotting people's sex. And it's intuitive to use 
the pronouns that relate to a person's sex, which is why it's really hard to call somebody they or per or zim or whatever, because you do perceive someone's sex. And, you know, if someone has transitioned and they've made a very strong effort to look like the opposite sex, you can kind of fool those systems. But just telling your brain to call a man they is really difficult. And it was interesting, you know, in my I was I was looking back at the notes of my case and the lawyer for the other side that there's a couple of non-binary people who turn up in, in the case who weren't colleagues, they were just people on Twitter. And even the lawyer from the other side gets the pronouns wrong. Um, it, you know, our brains are wired to see sex. So you founded Sex Matters. Um, can you tell me about that organization? How did you find it, found it? Why did you found it? What's the purpose of the organization? Yes. So Sex Matters is an organization with a singular purpose to clarify sex in law and policy um, in the UK, focused in the UK. And I, we started it um, just over a year ago, law launched it just over a year ago. There are a whole lot of organizations that are working, grassroots organizations that have sprung up in the last uh, three years in the UK working on this. And there are left wing, right wing, uh, feminist groups, the LGB Alliance, which is a sort of breakaway from Stonewall, which is the big uh, traditionally gay rights organization, but has now become a trans organization. Um, so there were already all of these groups, but we thought myself and the other co-founders that there needed to be a group that was sort of the foundations that was not, um, that was for anybody, whether they're religious, non-religious, left, right, men, women, gay, straight, everyone needs to be able to talk about sex for all kinds of reasons, you know, freedom of speech, sport, fairness and safety, uh, single sex services, and just the integrity of institutions. And so we wanted to do something that would just focus on that one issue and focus on the law and using the law and clarifying the law so that people, we have to get to a situation where um, it's not dangerous and difficult and costly to say the stuff that I said and that you don't have to go through a, a tribute. You know, this case has cost me three years of my life and about a quarter of a million pounds of not my money. Um, we can't, you know, we can't have hundreds of people going through that. It has to become normal, safe and straightforward for someone to say sex is real, sex matters and particularly in their job, if they're a teacher or a doctor or um, a social worker or somebody who's, you know, caring for other people and the health and safety of other people, they have to be able to say uh, there's a difference between men and women. We know who men and women are and we can treat everybody with respect, but we don't have to play um, make believe. And so that's really what we're trying to do. 
um, to make it safe for work. And you're also involved in this campaign, or I'm not sure, maybe you founded this campaign, also Respect My Sex If You Want My Ex. Yes, so this is a um, political campaign. We have local elections coming up uh, in the UK in May, and this was a campaign that was brought together by three groups. So Sex Matters, my group, which is policy-focused. Then there's a group called Women Uniting, which is made up of women who are active in political parties, so from the right, from the left, from the Greens, from the Scottish Nationalists, all all across the political spectrum, women who feel disenfranchised by their own parties um, and who want to raise this issue up the political agenda. And then a third group, the Women's Rights Network, which is a grassroots network of women who are not politically engaged some of them this is the first time they've been activists um on anything and others are veteran feminists of you know who've been in many fights and so the so these three groups came together to say let's use these local elections to tell politicians that this issue really matters to women and that they're really angry because what you often hear from politicians they say we don't hear this on the doorstep and we know that they do, and we want to um, make it public that in every constituency and every party, there are women saying, you need to take this seriously and you need to be able to say what a woman is. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is like a really powerful tool that we have, you know, that regular citizens have. I think often like, regular citizens feel like, what can I do about this? You know, like, I don't have some big social media platform. I'm not in the media. Um, I don't have political power. So how do I make a difference here? But votes do matter to politicians. Um, And so I think, you know, joining together and saying, you know, like, I'm not going to vote for a party that pretends it doesn't know what a woman is or isn't respecting or taking seriously women's sex-based rights is is a really important um, move. Right, absolutely. And, you know, when they're coming, knocking on your door and saying, what's the issue you care about? You know, it's a no-brainer. We should be be telling them. And if we can do it in an organised way, then maybe they'll hear are you know squeaky little quiet voices um and also you know within every party there are um men and women who get this and who have been sort of fighting the good fight within their own parties and you know they then get uh empowered by being able to hear this on the doorstep and being able to take it up up within their own parties um and so and things like my case also help people within political parties who are being uh bullied and harassed in the same way that i was for saying that sex is real and you know for saying things that are law in the uk that you have rights and those rights are protected based on sex you know what we're doing is no more than saying these are existing rights that we want to protect and people within 
political parties, within media organisations, within universities are being bullied and harassed for saying that. So, yeah, it's re it's really important. And we, it's been so um, uh, inspiring and enthusing, you know, just to see so many women out handing out leaflets, you know, doing stalls in their local high street to talk to uh, their neighbours about this. And when, you know, when you talk to ordinary people on the street, they get it. You know, when you say, should girls be able to have sports that are female only, people get that. Should girls be able to have showers and locker rooms that are female only, they get that. Should we be collecting data about men and women that is clear? All of that, um, you know, is it's straightforward. And politicians have to be able to engage with it and not tie themselves in knots of saying trans women are women. And you can't go further than that. There's like a pretty major difference in terms of how things have gone in the UK versus, <laughs> for example, Canada. Um, you know, UK women have been successful in um you know advocating politicians you know there's been successful lawsuits you know there's the kira bell case there's your case it seems like politicians and journalists are speaking out critically about this issue which hasn't really happened in canada what's the difference do you think between the uk and canada i mean you maybe in general, but specifically in terms of successes around this issue. You know, like in Canada, things have just progressed almost seemingly without any pushback. I mean, there has been pushback in Canada, but it's been ignored by the media and by politicians. You know, we yeah. did manage to have some events, and there are women protesting, particularly around the, the prison issue of allowing males to be transferred to female prisons. But, you know, not really successfully. Like, we didn't manage to accomplish anything major in Canada. Yeah, I mean, you know, both Canada and, and the US in, in different ways. Um, I think partly we're a bit behind you in terms of how this has gone. And so because we share a language, we've had, like, front row seats to what's gone on in Canada and what's gone on in the States. And so, you know, we looked at Yaniv, Jonathan Yaniv, you know, we looked at the Vancouver rape relief and went, oh my God, you know, those are like cautionary tales. And then, so I think there was that. And then I think, um, you know, we're just a much, much smaller country in terms of landmass. And so it was much easier for women to meet. And Women's Place UK has put on, you know, dozens and dozens of meetings around the country, which have, you know, covered most, you know, most people could get to a meeting if, the, if they wanted. So that has sort of reached most of the, the geographic landmass of the country. Um, and then certainly compared to the US, it isn't such a polarizing and polarized issue in terms of right and left. Um, and I think, you know, Canada 
also sort of um, defines itself as being not not the US and not you know um, the the sort of morally superior um, North American country and this has been seen as being uh, the right side of history both for Canada and the Democrats in the US where you know nobody on the progressive side um, could be seen to be having doubts about it whereas in the UK the pushback has come much more from um, women on the left and from the trade union movement and I think that's made a difference and that's just I guess it's an accident of starting points and the politics that was there um, at the outset but I'm hoping that what we're doing is going to make a difference and so you know we'll sort of help you guys in terms of you know if one country can push back against it and create a demonstration effect and show that you know you can respect people's human rights without letting go of reality then maybe that can make a difference and I mean it's you know it's it's interesting to see the gender doctors you know in the US Erica Anderson in the LA Times saying I think this has gone too far mm-hmm. yeah things it does seem like the tide is turning um certainly more and more and more people are speaking out um and I I guess I wonder if you think, you know, like, yeah, people are feeling bolder to speak out. People are challenging what's going on, particularly the issues of, like, women's sports people seem to be mm. challenging and then what's happening to kids as a result of gender identity ideology and, like, you know, kids' bodies and lives are being destroyed because of this because of these surgeries and these hormones and it's really really quite devastating um i i guess i wonder do you see the tides turning in terms of institutions i mean it's one thing for people to be speaking out about this and talking about it and publishing books about it and it seems to be like it's it's starting to be okay to say these things that we weren't allowed to say two or three years ago um and but the institutional capture is another issue do you see that changing it's really the roots go deep and the institutional capture is is really wide and i mean that's partly why we set up sex matters because we thought that you know that you could see the tide is turning in kind of slow ways and quick ways but it's not going to be over by Christmas and we need to have our own organisations that are able to um, work at scale and, um, you know, and, and um, address the institutional capture. So deal with policymakers, deal with regulators, deal with the, um, in the UK, the NHS, the National Health Services, you know, is a huge part of, um, the infrastructure that uh, enforces this and similarly the education system which is feeding the idea of gender identity into children um, and so sort of unpicking all that and 
getting it out of um, the schools, the public institutions, the regulators, the professions um, is is going to be quite a long job uh, because, you know, it's taken 15 years of work of people putting this stuff in. You know, people have been lobbying and changing sex to gender and moving the goalposts of where something is sex to where it is self-identified gender um, in all of these institutions for so long, it's going to take a lot to unpick them. And I mean, one of the things that has shocked me, I guess, the most from, from this experience is how weak and cowardly a lot of the leadership of these organisations are that, you know, to get into those positions of leadership, you have had, people have had to look away from this, whether they, whether they're concerned or not, they've looked away from it. And so you end up with organisations like the Office for National Statistics, whose whole, you know, they have one job, and that one job is collecting good data. And when it came to the census, they said, oh, you know, people don't really need to answer the sex question with their actual sex. They can answer with their their lived their lived gender. And they had to be taken to court by grassroots feminists putting together their 10 pounds and 20 pounds to, you know, to take the Office for National Statistics to court to say, no, you need to collect data on sex. But the fact that within these organisations, which are full of people who should be just saying, um, yeah, sure, be kind, but we have a job and our job is collecting collecting data. Um, though, you know, that corruption within every single organisation has been has been shocking. Um, and you can't turn that around quickly. And I think for me, that's why I think this thing is is so important because having institutions that work and people who can do their job is really, really important for, for society. It goes beyond the specific issues of women in sport or, um, you know, women in prison. I mean, those are the, those are the sharp end issues, but it permeates the whole of institutions. Can the people within them speak the truth and can the leaders of those institutions hold them to their missions or do they give in to something which you know as you said it's clown town um and in you know it, this is kind of a canary in the coal mine thing if if it's not this it'll be something else and we need to have our institutions fighting back for their own mission and you recently had a very controversial lunch um <laughs> <laughs> With a very evil woman, <laughs> um, J.K. Rowling, of course. How did how did that come about? Um, well, it. I got the invitation um, before Christmas last year, and we were going to have lunch. Um, it was going to be a sort of pre-Christmas lunch. It was actually the anniversary of the day um, that she tweeted. Uh, on December the 19th and then and it, and it would have been a lunch to kind of cheer us up in the dark days of winter 
when we thought we were losing or at least you know it felt very dark and um then there was a another wave of covid and and it was cancelled and so then by the time it was rearranged uh for um april quite a lot of change in the uk we'd had new guidance from the equality and human rights commission on single sex services uh we'd had the cas review interim report on children and gender identity development services where um, a paediatrician had been asked by the National Health Service to look at this and had come out with things that are very, you know, the things that Transgender Trend and um, organisations that have been saying this from the sidelines have been saying for a long time. Um, and I'd also had my hearing for my case. I haven't had the results yet, but the hearing itself was quite positive and exposed more of this so that you know there was quite a few things that had happened um that were positive and the prime minister has now said uh you know sex matters um so by the time we did meet for lunch we were quite um in a in a quite different place than we had been in december um and it was quite joyful well that sounds um Hateful and bigoted to me. Well, yes. Well, there was, there was that too, but there was lots of uh, wine and laughter and good food and women of all shapes and sizes. And how how dare we? <laughs> well, I hope you you never have lunch again. <laughs> I'm joking, of course. Um, well, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I know you're super busy. Um, I'm sure you're exhausted after the last few years. Um, and I think that the, the work you've done is just incredible. I mean, you've made a real difference and, and you are continuing to make a real difference. And I know that women around the world are, are very inspired by that. Thank you. You just heard an interview with Maya Forstetter co-founder of Sex Matters, as well as the Respect My Sex If You Want My Ex campaign. You can find her on Twitter at M4Statter. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com, tweet at us at Feminist Current, or send us an email at info at feministcurrent.com. You can subscribe to the Feminist Current Podcast anywhere you like to listen. iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Spotify, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Feminist Current is produced and hosted by myself, Megan Murphy. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.